Hi everyone! Our World Bank EdTech team speaks with educators globally to learn how they're innovating, and today we're speaking about adaptive learning and how adaptive learning can mitigate learning losses and accelerate learning. World Bank research analyst Maria Barone is speaking with World Bank senior education specialist Cristobal Cobo, World Bank senior economist Diego Angel Urinola, and World Bank economist Juan Barone about the promise of adaptive learning and lessons from Ecuador and the Dominican Republic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech podcast. I'm Maria Baron. I'm a core member of the World Bank EdTech team, and I'm pleased to be here with you today. Today, we're focusing on adaptive learning technologies. At the beginning of 2021, the EdTech team identified as one of the main topics of interest for ministries of education worldwide the need to mitigate learning losses caused by the ongoing pandemic and exploring the use of technology as a pathway to accelerate learning. One technology that can help with that is adaptive learning. This edition of the World Bank EdTech podcast focuses on this topic and its application in countries such as Dominican Republic and Ecuador. We are delighted to have with us colleagues with boots on the ground experience on adaptive learning. Let me go over to them for brief introductions. Hi, Maria and colleagues. Very happy to join you. My name is Cristobal Co. I'm a senior education technology specialist and I work in the EdTech team. Hello, everybody, and I'm pleased to be in this group. My name is Diego Angel Urdinola and I work for the Education Global Practice in Latin America. I'm currently working on EdTech in Chile, Ecuador and the Caribbean. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here. My name is Juan Barón. I'm a senior economist in the global practice in education, and I work in several countries, including South Asia in Pakistan, but also in some countries in Latin America that we will talk about. Great to have all of you and really looking forward to this session. So to set the stage a bit, we're going to ask for the what and why of adaptive learning. And for that, let me start with a question to Cristobal. Just for the people who are listening in that are very new to this technology, what exactly is adaptive learning? Thank you, Maria. I think this is a great question and, and try to offer a quick overview. Adaptive technologies are technologies that can offer some level of personalization based on intensive use of data. So the more data, the more personalized the learning experience will be. So it offers some kind of cognitive tutoring to support the learning experience. Now, adaptive solutions can be organized in different buckets. So we have tools which are adapted that can help us to profile the learning characteristics, his or her strengths and, and where she might require additional help. But also there are adaptive solutions that can help us to personalize what is gonna be your learning path. So what are the materials that can be of particular help for you? Or there are other adaptive solutions that can be considered a kind of intelligent tutoring system in which the whole learning experience, the whole journey is throughout this interaction between the student and the technology. And the teacher can be present or the teacher can be behind the student providing a design of the intervention. Finally, these solutions can be offered also not only for diagnostic, but also for prescriptive. So saying where the learner might need additional help. So what are the materials? What is the kind of feedback that can be of help for the student? So we have these different routes that I think offer a wealth of options for enriching the learning experience and also for making the work of the teachers more comprehensive. Okay, Cristobal, and let me ask you a follow-up question. Why do you think adaptive learning is so important? What is the promise of this technology? 
the promise is to enhance the role of the teacher, but at the same time, to be sure that when learners are learning, not all of them will be learning at the same speed, at the same rate, with the same performance. So the higher the personalization, the more possibilities of benefiting kids who might be at different stage of progression. So in that sense, a good integration of personalized learning or adaptive solutions can be very inclusive at a system level. There is various terminology used for describing adaptive learning. We've heard self-led learning, personalized adaptive learning, is technology necessary for self-led learning or adaptive learning? Why is it so linked with technology? That's a good question. But let me tell you how I understand adaptive learning by telling you the problem that I see. What I see is that in a typical classroom worldwide, let's say you have 20, 25 students and one teacher. And what happens is that not all those kids in that classroom have the same level of competencies and also of dominion of the curricula of the class that they are attending. There was a study in OECD, and it showed that when you have that typical classroom on a, let's say, five or sixth grade, you have out of those 20 kids, maybe you have five that really know what's going on in the class. They fully understand the teacher. They ask questions. But then you have 10 that are almost there, that they know most of the curricula. They can understand a little bit. But then you have the rest with gaps or with very acute gaps. So what happens is that the normal teacher just teaches to the average and she doesn't acknowledge that within that classroom there is a distribution. And then what happened is that this gap became explicit about five or six years ago when there was an experiment in India that it applied tests of knowledge in mathematics to kids who were actually enrolled in 10th grade. And what they found is what, that there was some kids enrolled in 10th grade that had the knowledge or the curriculum dominion of kids of fourth grade, fifth grade, and sixth grade. And what they did is they started to put these kids into groups, right? So let's those who have the, the dominion of the curriculum of a fourth grader, let's put them here in this corner. The ones who have dominion of sixth grader, let's put them here in this corner. And then they started to teach them at the level of competence. And what they saw, which was kind of an eye-opener for the education and community, is that these kids, once you taught them at the level of competencies where they were, in six or seven months of instructions, they would improve their learning, what was equivalent to one or two or even three years of instruction. And that was kind of the booster of what started the adaptive learning movement, which has this concept of teaching at the right level. But then you cannot have 10 tutors in one class. That would be very costly, very expensive. And that's where technology can help because technology can, as Cristobal was saying, can assess the kids and then can help them in a way achieve the average, right? Or just kind of see where they are, the curriculum, with the dominion of the curriculum, and then try to get them to a point where they can follow what is going on in class. That's a fantastic explanation. Thanks a lot. I think that makes it super, super clear and actually further develops how technology can accelerate this. And thank you for referring to the MindSpark experiment. I think it's, it's a super, super useful experience that sets the stage and actually that created the first of many interventions that are focused on adaptive learning. I wanted to ask a question for Cristobal, for you, Juan, for Diego. Why do you think adaptive learning is important. Just building on what Diego said, I think 
it is important because it helps solve a pedagogical problem, right? So although we started by focusing on the technology, I think that Diego started beefing up a little bit of the rationale on the pedagogical side. Teaching in developing countries is very complicated. As Diego said, there are high student-teacher ratios. The preparation of children when they get to school, even in the first grades, is very, very dissimilar compared to developed countries. As Diego said, there are other studies that show that teachers will, at the end of the day, either teach to the average child in the classroom or the top of the distribution. Uh, and on top of that, there is all this evidence about how adaptive instruction really works not only in South Asia but in Africa and that's not necessarily the mind spark work but all the strategies that, that have been an experiment that have been done around the world on adaptive instruction is how the teacher can adapt to the level of the students. And when we look at teacher training initiatives, one of the best programs that there are, usually they try to give teachers enough tools to be able to respond to the child, to the needs of the child, right? So it is now that, that technology comes to help that, to help the teacher in the classroom, not only group students, but to actually identify the particularities of each children need for learning. And that can only be achieved either with one-to-one -one teacher or with technology. So we see this technology as a way to really support teachers be more responsive to the specific needs of each child in the classroom. And I think that actually gives a lot of potential to this technology uh, as long as we and governments can make it work for each children because it just supports those needs. Thanks a lot, Juan. That's great. And later in the podcast, we're going to address some of the challenges you are hinting at in terms of teachers, in, in, in terms of policies of governments. But let me go first to Cristobal to also share his thoughts on why adaptive learning is so crucial. The temptation is to think in technologies that will replace the role of the teachers. Some people might think this is just to bypass educators. So we need technology and not teachers. But this is just the opposite. The opposite is in terms of this technology can be of extreme help when there's a shortage of teachers or when there is a necessity of adding an extra layer of support, when there is the possibility of adding information that will screen the profile of the students and the needs that she or, or he may have. So in that sense, this partnership between the information that this technology can provide and the expertise that the teacher has in the ground, it really offers a whole set of opportunities. So this technology won't work if educators are not on board, if they don't find the, the value of bridging between the tools or the learning experience that teachers could have when they go for assignment exercises of, of diagnostic and the teacher connecting that with the lessons that are happening in the classroom. And I think the, the premises are the more dedication are from the students using these systems, the better the system will be able to profile on the experience of the learner. So I think it's an interesting combination. Probably, Maria, you remember when, when a chess player was defeated by a technology and then he decided to invent a new game, which is a player with the technology playing against other technology with a human. And I think here is somehow similar. We are not fighting against anyone, but the idea of combining expertise and technical capacities, I think is the best opportunity. Therefore, many countries are opening the radar and, and bringing more interest into the question how these personalized technologies can improve the learning experience. The gaps in the knowledge of the curricula are cumulative. So you cannot learn to multiply if you haven't properly learned how to add, right? And that's what's happening to a lot of the kids. 
they are going into courses where teachers are expecting them to multiply because that's what the curriculum tells them that they should do. But then these kids don't know addition well. They're not proficient in that. So as they continue to move on with the curricula that the teachers have to impart, then they move more behind and behind. And when these kids have the chance, they just drop out. So I would say that the main reason why you should kind of accommodate or teach at the right level is so that you prevent these gaps from really becoming large to the point that the kid is in a classroom not understanding what is going on. Because when that happens, generally when they reach middle school, they decide, look, it's not worth it for me to be in the classroom. I'm not understanding the content. I just drop out. And that also happens at that age, but also when kids get into college. When kids get into college, they are very motivated. They go to first year college and they realize that they have so much gaps in high school that they don't understand what they are actually teaching at the class in the first year. That's why we have so high rates of dropout for first years students in college. So I would say that's the why we should focus on learning. We should acknowledge that every kid has different gaps and we need to personalize and try to wash away those gaps if we don't want to lose them, right? And then kind of bringing back the focus on learning through personalized instruction. That's a very, very relevant point. And, and I wanted to do a follow-up question to you, Diego. This is a technology that can address the learning gaps. But what do you think it has become, let's say, a bit more talked about in these uh, latest months due to what we are thinking of the recovery phase of the COVID-19 pandemic? I think it's very relevant because not every kid had access to the same education technology, right? Some of them were more connected. Some of them were less connected. Some of them did homework. Some of them had parents who could help them at home. But then the teachers and the schools don't know what these kids have been going through in their educational process. So this software could make that explicit. As Cristobal was mentioning in the beginning, adaptive learning softwares have like three main components. They first assess the kids, right? So you, so you know at what level they are. Then they start teaching them at that level. And sometimes they don't make them go into the higher level until they master the level that they are at. And then they continue to assess. So I think that would be very pertinent in these times of COVID because the, the dispersion that I mentioned that there exists in classrooms on a normal time, right now they are larger and probably they have exacerbated because of the COVID. So if you have a software that first can help assess kids to know where they are, then try to teach them at the right level and then continue to assess, then that's going to be a great instrument for the teachers to know where they are, what are the kids who need more support, and then try to level them up so that they, in a way, have or have the skills and competencies where they are supposed to be to be able to be successful in the classroom. Thanks a lot, Diego. I think that's why there has been so much interest in this technology, even, even though it's not exactly new, because it allows to, to actually give students the opportunity to recover in terms of the learning losses that they've suffered. Many of them have lost even a whole school year, as numbers from UNICEF indicate. So I know you and Juan have boots on the ground experiences in the Dominican Republic and in Ecuador. So I think the public will benefit a lot from learning how this was implemented in these countries. So please, Juan, tell us a bit more details on your experiences implementing this type of adaptive technologies 
in the Dominican Republic. Thanks, Maria. So in the Dominican Republic, we have a few projects and a good engagement built to support teachers and to support improving in learning outcomes for more than four years now. We came across some of the work that had been done and documented in Cartix and, and other co-authors papers in India. And what we were thinking is, how can we make this work for public sector schools, which is the bulk of our clients? Is How can we make this more scalable? Can this work in a middle-income country that in general would have more access to devices, more access to funding, and in many of them already have the devices. So what we did was at the end of the day, we did three pilots. One of them is an impact evaluation. So we started with five schools, I remember. All we wanted to do was to see whether we could actually make sure that the highest number of kids could get the software in front of them. Right. So because we can talk about the software, but the software is only the last mile of a more complex problem of implementation. So from that experience, we realized that in which we have more or less 600 students, we realized that it was possible that they were like three out of the five schools uh, managed to implement the program. And we learned valuable legacies for implementations that we will discuss a little bit later today. Uh, then we move to some kind of impact evaluation to be able to see whether this kind of sof software and approach could be incorporated as part of a program that existed at the time that was the full school day program, which was part of a bigger reform in terms of extending the school day. So basically we work with more or less 5,000 students at the time for three to four months. And then we documented a lot of the uh, progress. Right now we are focusing on, on analyzing the results. These were ninth grade students. The first pilot was done for sixth grade students. And we have learned a lot on implementation. There are many, many challenges to make this software work. But we think that in countries like the Dominican Republic, this is a very valuable opportunity. We did not invest anything in terms of devices. We tried to use the devices that existed already in the schools. And we were with each school and with the inspectors to organize and do the planning of the sessions each week. We were trying to do two to three 90 minute sessions for your children. There are many lessons there and it was a very good experience. I think that one of the biggest experience or lessons from this introduction is the fact that most of the software that have been used in the past in the Dominican Republic was static. By, by that, I mean that it just wherever you go, if there is an assessment, you go through the set of videos or you go through the set of material. In this one, it adapts um, at every single point. As Diego said, there is a lot of, it's based on assessment. It only moves to a different topic once the child is ready. And there is a very strong artificial intelligence machine behind it. By the way, the, the software that we use in the Dominican Republic is called Alec, that is owned by McGraw Hill. Uh, so we also partnered with them to try to see whether it could be potentially used in the public sector. So I'll, I'll let, let it there for now, but I'll jump in with other lessons as we discuss the other topics. Diego? Thanks, Juan. So, Maria, in Ecuador, basically, we have a, two projects right now. One of them is a basic education project, and the other one is a higher education project that focuses on technical education. So what we saw in Ecuador, even before the pandemic, there were very high dropout rates, very noticeable at two points 
in the life of a student. One of them was when they were finishing seventh grade, which was kind of the point where they would go into upper secondary school. And also there were very high dropout rates the first year of higher education, especially for technicians, which tend to come from more disadvantaged households. So we were trying to see how we could address that and what were the reasons of those dropouts. And it turned out that a very important reason for dropout was the lack of understanding of the curricula. So what we did in this case, in these two pilots, was to basically calibrate or find a software that could be able to provide adaptive learning in mathematics. We would have liked also to have a similar software for reading, but we started with mathematics. So the first thing we did is we tried to calibrate the curricula of that software for the basic education kids to the seventh grade curricula, for the college students to the curricula of math that they need to learn to be successful in first year. And then after that, we basically gave the licenses to the students. They would be assessed. And then what we found out is that in both cases, they would know 20 to 25% of the curricula that they were expected to know. So on average, there was a big need for remediation on the average class for seventh grader and for first year college students. Then uh, we did a pilot. Uh, The first pilot was in five schools and in five technical institutes. And what we learned is that in those pilots, which were very followed up, they were easy to handle in a way because there were not a lot of schools. We realized that if you go over the software with the students for the recommended amounts of time, they can really learn about 10 to 15% of the curricula that they are supposed to learn or they can catch up every month. So basically, if you give these kids a six-month remediation on that grade, they almost kind of catch up to where they're supposed to be. Now, this was what motivated the pilots in Ecuador. Then the government decided, giving those results, to scale up. But then scaling up was not easy. But I wanted to talk maybe about that later when we talk about implementation challenges. Thanks a lot, Juan and Diego. That's super valuable information, especially for many colleagues that may be listening in and are in other countries considering to implement this type of interventions. Before going to the next section, though, I wanted to briefly ask, if you were asked by a colleague, what are some considerations that you think are super important in the design stage to implement an adaptive learning intervention? What tips would you give them? Thanks, Maria. I think some of the things that we have produced, and I'm sure that those presentations would be in the bank's website, capture some of these. One is to know whether devices are available. And if they are not one-to-one, how they would be divided across the students. That's one. The other one is whether the hardware has the right software, right? So, and for us, the right software is the software that can assess the students, that can produce feedback, that collects data in a confidential way, whether the, the software is available on the language, which is not a minor thing that we will discuss a little bit later, whether it's contextualized and aligned with the curriculum. So, and also that is simple and most important that is actually adaptable, that it adapts to the needs of the children. We have seen many softwares that claim that is the case, but there are 
different degrees of adaptability. And that is important to understand. The third one is principal teachers and students need to be on board on this. As Diego mentioned, this is very important. And for that, one of the strategies that we use is to let the schools build those sessions within the planning activities of the school. Another one is connectivity. So some of these software need connectivity. Uh, some of them don't need the connectivity right away, but need to connect every once in a while. And then we go into other challenges that our schools suffer from, which is, uh, is electricity available for the sessions? Are there backups to, to produce electricity? Is the hardware securely stored, for example? That is important. Would this school be willing to actually implement this? And who needs to support this kind of activities? For example, is it the teacher? Is it the math teacher? In the DR, we also train the, the computer science teacher that they have in the school and also the school principal. And that worked very well. Another thing that was very important for us is the potential for scalability. We didn't want to do something that was extremely expensive or extremely difficult to scale up. And then we also did some estimations on what are the funding requirements for the software. Is that realistic within the budgets of the ministries? And then I will stop there so that Diego can add uh, a few others that I'm sure he has from their experience in Ecuador. Thanks, Juan. Look, no, I, I think your answer was very comprehensive in terms of design features that I would add besides those that you said is that pick up well the grade where you want to implement this technology if you have resources constraints and then I would say the earlier the better or where you see that this dispersion in competencies is starting to spread out and my recommendation there would be kind of to if you don't have enough funds to do it at every single level of education, maybe to do it in the transitions, right? At the end of primary school, at the end of middle school, at the end of high school, so that you make sure that those kids that change one level to the other at least are where they are supposed to be. So the timing is important. Also, let's say for those kids who have limited connectivity, it's important to assure that they have some type of device or access to school labs. This is not always given. But I think it needs to be guaranteed because otherwise, if we uh, rely only on the students' own devices, we may exclude the kids who need it the most. To wrap up, I would just say that, and this is probably for me the most important one, to build the whole chain that is going to produce a result, right? So sometimes when we have this discussion, we focus on the technology or in the connectivity or schools don't have this or that. But to make this happen, you need a full approach, not only to guarantee the logistics, but also to guarantee what the pedagogical approach would be, how this would complement the math class. Is this going to take time from the class or is this going to be additional? Who's going to do what? Who's going to follow up, for example, on the data to monitor which schools are following up and how many hours are kids getting? So having like a clear implementation plan, not only on the logistics, but also like the implementation fidelity, as someone call it, would be like very, very useful. Thanks a lot, Juan and Diego. These are fantastic considerations, very pragmatic on how to have a very well-designed theory of change. And as you say, thinking about implementation fidelity, which I think is very crucial and thinking about how to embed this intervention into the overall educational system, ecosystem or in a way not to make it an additional thing, but actually make it something that, that helps the system works better and works towards learning. But let me go to Cristobal. Cristobal, as a member 
of the World Bank EdTech Core Team you support countries on a day-to-day -day basis all over the world. And I know that several are looking to the promises of this technology. Can you tell us some of the things that are brewing? What are the things that countries need to consider before thinking or implementing these types of solutions? Absolutely, absolutely. I think we all agree that the pandemic has been a game changer and has been accelerating for many policymakers the importance of not providing technology, but to having a policy that really offers something more than the access to devices or, 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 or platforms. So in that sense, my impression is supporting countries in different regions. I see an emergence of what we could call a new generation of EdTech policies, which are increasingly integrating data-intensive systems to support the different forms of education, rather to catch up, extending the study time. But we can summarize them as different possibilities for personalizing the learning experience. So countries these days are working on increasing through these tools the learning time or diversifying the means of support for the learning experience through STEM, math, but also uh, reading, as the one were mentioning. And to some extent, when possible, to support the role of the teacher with these tools. Some countries are, for instance, saying to what extent the integration of these solutions can be helpful for tailor the learning experience of the students or increase the student retention environments where that can be a sensitive issue. Or to offer remedial learning experience for those students who might need additional support. So these actions are happening these days. And I think this is because of the examples of my colleagues, which are saying these things, when well implemented, they work. You and I were a few days ago in this presentation from an academic from the Virginia University, presenting these systematic studies, a systematic review of rigorous studies on EdTech. And he found that the self-led learning art tools are really offering very promising results. But this is not magic. This is, as I think Diego said, that this is the last mile only the technology. There, there are a whole ecosystem of actions to be taken. And Juan was mentioning this chain supply, this chain ecosystem. And I think exactly this is what we have to take into account and to address that these open opportunities, but also there's something that we have to take into account. I think they presented in a very comprehensive way, but I'm going to summarize which I think are the five key elements that are important to take into account. The first one is the ownership of it. There are today some solutions in the market, and this is uh, it requires to, to do some investment and consistent investment in terms of the licensing and the support. Or the other option is countries are also exploring the possibility of developing by their own this adaptive system. So one is the licensing. The second one has to do with mapping the contents with the curriculum. It's really important to be sure that these systems are not external, but they somehow are attached with a strategy that is prioritized by the country. The third, which I think also was very well addressed, is the idea of thinking in a robust digital infrastructure. These systems require electricity, require access to devices, require, in many cases, connectivity, or at least some level of connectivity in order to make the best of these solutions. So it's important to take into account all these components. But the fourth element is equally important, to be sure that the teachers will receive the appropriate support to integrate these solutions, to see the value of these solutions, and also to learn how to read the data that these systems provide in order to make the best of it. And finally, none of these dimensions will work if we don't have the students actively engaged. So there has to be some level of commitment, some frequency in the use, some consistency along the time, because this is not magic, it's a supportive system. And let me finish saying that UNESCO last week, they released a manifesto on children's data. And I think that also brings a new set of challenges, 
maybe not new, but increasingly relevant set of challenges in terms of the Ministry of Education, which are opening agendas in this area, which we think is a good idea. Also, we have to address how to be protective and make it a, a very good use of this data, coordinating and collaborating with other agencies without putting the data privacy of the students at risk. So I think this set up as some roadmap of the actions that we can consider. Thanks a lot, Cristobal. I think this presents a very clear picture of what are the things that we need to watch out for. We need to think about these enabling conditions. And as in any intervention, there is no silver bullet. We need to look at this, as you say, in the context of the whole ecosystem. But Juan Diego, related to the caveats and enabling conditions that Cristobal has laid out, what are some of the challenges that you face during implementation? Maria, to answer your question, I would like to share first what we saw. What we saw in classroom is classrooms where students that were very engaged, where the gamification of these kind of platforms really worked, where they felt with a very healthy competition, more engaged with their other students. And that's one important part. The second one was that the dynamic in the class also, in the normal math class also changed. And, and teachers actually recognized that very directly, saying that the students were more active in their math class. They were asking questions sometimes that are very advanced to their level. And then the third point that I would say is this also had an effect on how teachers taught their math class. The reason for that is that they started to realize that, for example, there were kids that were excellent at at math that weren't doing very well before, uh, maybe because of lack of motivation, maybe because they have gaps in some of the knowledge, they didn't master some of the content. Also, the platform also helped teachers come up with different ways of explaining things to kids. So this particular platform that we work with has explanations that would help kids understand why they were wrong in the answers. And these kind of platforms have usually two or three different ways of explaining an exercise, for example. And what, what teachers were saying is like, when I ask my, my teacher, sometimes I get the same explanation. So teachers are starting also realizing that there were other ways to explain exactly the same exercise for different types of learning that happen in the classroom. So I think that that is not only the impact that would have maybe on the outcomes at the end of the day, but also on the dynamic and the interactions that teachers have with the students and how it brings also a little bit more dynamism in some classrooms that need it or that could benefit a little bit more from that. In terms of challenges, I think that before uh, we mentioned some of them, I don't think engagement was a challenge. I think the challenge were more logistics in terms of continuous electricity, the challenge of actually making this happen within the planning of the school. I think one of the lessons that we learned is that we need to start this at the beginning of the year so that pedagogical groups can start planning to incorporate this in the activities of the school. We didn't have one device per student, but given that we did a little bit of planning with the schools, they were also able to split the groups and then just have different sessions with different students. And then finally, and I think that we don't talk about this enough, is that the ministry was also very engaged. So when the ministry could see that some schools were not bringing the, the kids to do the sessions, they will go to the schools and ask what the issues were. And the issues in general were that there was no electricity, 
or there was no internet or some other logistical problem. So using that data, not only for the teacher, but also to do monitoring and, and targeted support to these kind of initiatives is very useful as well. Diego? Thanks a lot, Juan. So Maria, in terms of challenges, let me basically tell you about the higher education rollout. So after the pilot, where everything was kind of controlled and went well, we rolled out these 240 technical institutes. The idea was to provide a license to every first year student in those institutes. That amounts to about 6,000 students. And then I have to admit that it really got difficult to start. Let me tell you why. The first thing is that getting into calibrating the curricula was a challenge. Because when you go into technical institutes, each career, whether it's auto mechanics, whether it's a electricity, hydraulics, they have different requirements for math. So basically, you kind of have to go and talk to every single teacher of a particular program. What is the curricula that in math or the curricular items that they need to know in math to be able to be successful in your class? So that was a lot of work especially because these technical institutes have at least nine type of fields or more. So you would have to go and calibrate each of them. So that took time. The second issue well, was, was connectivity, but not that much because for some reason, the kids at the college level, at least in Ecuador, they at least have access to a smartphone. And the software, it would work actually from a smartphone. Now, what, what we realized that was a big problem was also the, the records, the database. The technical education system in Ecuador didn't have a very good information system. So when we had the first set of licenses assigned to students, let's say it was 6,000, after two weeks, there were 2,000 licenses that had not been activated. And then we realized that it was due to the poor quality of the data set. Either the email of the student was not well registered, so basically he wouldn't have the invitation and the information about his license to log in or log out, then some of these students actually accepted an offer to enroll into the technical institute but did not show up so it took it about it took us about two or three weeks only to clean the records and that was and that was also challenging because the semester would move in very quickly and then many students would not initiate their remediation and then last but not least was take up we realized that even though we gave the license that it was for free that we trained teachers and so on there were many students, or at least half of them, who were not using the app the recommended time. So McGraw-Hill was saying, look, you need to use it at least 15 minutes per day for it to be successful. That's the recommended time. We were achieving less than 50, or at least 50% of the kids doing that recommended time, but the rest were not doing that. We realized that it was a slow take-up. And sometimes that slow take-up was on the side of the students. Some of these technical students work and study, so they didn't have the incentive or the time to just log in and, and do the remediation. And the same for teachers. So some teachers, even though they received training, they didn't think it was useful or it was not a requirement or it was not mandated, so they did not encourage as much students to do it. And actually, this distribution of kids were very, very spread out. Uh, some of them were high-performing kids, some of them were low-performing kids, but then it's kind of challenging to get this, this student take-up. And then the management of the licenses. The government of Ecuador got really worried when they realized that they had purchased 2,000 licenses and that these licenses 
were not used or maybe they were used once because many students also dropped out really quickly after the semester started. So they were wondering, look, how can we do in order to capitalize? We just paid for a license for full six months and then this student only used it for five to 10 minutes. So it becomes kind of a, a little troublesome for education systems to see that fat or that waste, especially when it becomes massive because it can amount to, to large costs. And then the support. Many kids lost their password. They didn't have clear mechanisms to retrieve it and so on and so forth. I would say that most of these pilots, to my knowledge, have been done on a small scale. But I would say that you have to anticipate all these, all these challenges in terms of take-up connectivity and data management when you really go in a larger scale. And these were things we wouldn't have known before we started. Thanks, Diego. Thanks, Juan. I think all of the challenges you've mentioned and the different ones, it's interesting to hear how engagement was a bit of a problem in, in Ecuador, but not so much in the DR. And, and I think this represents all the variability of implementation that you can find. And this information on potential challenges that may arise is extremely useful for policymakers and researchers looking into adaptive technologies. I know that you have already shared some tips for our colleagues, but would you have any other general advice for countries that are looking into this technology, especially in the context of the pandemic? It's break time for the kids. Uh, <laughs> and Diego, your kids are welcome extra guests in this podcast. So I wanted to, to follow up with you. I know you've shared some of your experience. So if you have any other general advice for countries that are looking into this technology. Yes, I would say that the best way of integrating this type of technologies to support learning and to support the work that teachers do in classrooms, especially now that we need to be very conscious about funding for education and really deliver learning, is to do it. I don't think there is a silver bullet or we cannot cover all the different aspects that could come uh, in the implementation of these type of softwares. I think that our approaches, I think that we have given uh, and discussed some of the things that are more relevant, but at the end of the day, it would be the particularities of each country on how to implement it, how to structure it, how to guarantee some of the logistics and some of the approach with teachers, students and parents as well. So, so my advice would be to start. This is the future of learning. I have no doubt about it. This is what top schools in the world are using. And I think the challenge is how can we bring these to public education systems that can benefit massively and can benefit the poorest children to attend our public school sectors in the world. Maria, before answering your question, I wanted to share a testimonial as a parent now, not as an education specialist, which I think that got me motivated into learning more about adaptive learning. With the World Bank, I had to go three years abroad. So I had to live in a, in a foreign country. My kid went to the American school in that country. But when we came back, he told me that I am not being able to follow up math. I just don't get what the teacher is teaching. So I realized that my son, who was entering high school here in the States after being away in middle school, was, was behind. Eventually, those were the times when I first became exposed to, to this technology. And I said, look, why not use it? And then it was really nice to see how he started to use it. And he started to really progress and, and remediate to a point where after six or seven months of using the platform, he said, look, finally, I am back. 
and he ended up his high school very successfully. Now he's in college. So that was very nice to see. But then I didn't stop there and I gave it to my fourth grader. But with him was different. He was not behind. I just gave it to him and said, look, just run with it. And today he's finishing fourth grade, but he's doing math for sixth grade. So in a way, he's advanced two years. And, and, and then I am very proud to see when I get the, the state uh, exam saying that he is 99th percentile. And I do attribute it to the, to the technology and to the platform. So what I say is that this thing works, especially because it has this personalized uh, instruction feature. Uh, of course, you have to be disciplined. Sometimes it's hard to get them to use it. So you have to nudge, you have to encourage them. I think that's the role of the parents, of the teachers. It's important to get this uh, technology in the hands of the students and then uh, for them to love it. Also to teachers, teachers may be used to teaching in one way and then they feel that these things come on top and sometimes they may not be motivated to use it. So it's important really to communicate well about the privileges and benefits of this technology and also not only use it for remediation, you can also use it to identify kids that could be gifted and talented or that could be tutors of other kids. You can, for example, do study groups. As a teacher, you can take low performing with high performing kids and maybe put them together into groups. So there's really a, a great way to identify where the kids at and then to try to develop responses that adapt to the needs of those kids. So I do really think we need to continue to communicate more the, the virtues of this software to work a lot with principals and teachers and then to continue to provide evidence showcasing that these things work. And sorry, Maria, if I may, just to under right. underscore what my colleagues are mentioned, I think um, in addition to all the dimensions that they have emphasized, which are central, I think countries need to budget some time. So this will require a middle-term agenda. It's not something that is going to happen overnight. It will require, as they say, access to technology, but also changes in behavior. And when you go to large scale, you have to put that into the roadmap. If you don't see magic results in six months, it doesn't mean that the, the intervention is not working, but it will require to have sustained transformation. Just Thanks a lot, Cristobal, Diego, Juan. I think all of these are very, very important considerations and I can feel your passion about this type of technology and how transformative it can be when implemented well. And when we think about some of the, the criteria that all of you have explained in terms of enabling considerations, when we counter for possible potential challenges in the implementation. So, so thank you very much for sharing all of these important and relevant points. So let me go to another part of the podcast, and, and it is completely unrelated to what we have been talking about. I think our listeners always like to hear about perhaps a book and podcast recommendation that you could share with them. They are developing these robots that engage kids. So I'm reading and kind of getting into that more on the free time that as part of work. Thanks, Juan. Over to you, Diego. Something I've read quite recently, which kind of called my attention, is how we are starting to define the, the concept of a space. And now people are referring to the cyberspace as just an additional a form of a space that acknowledges that as you develop schools or even recreation facilities, architectural social places there is the physical space the one that you are used to having and, and then 
there is the, the cyberspace. And, and the idea is that now as we think about space, we have to think about both. And both of them are as real and both of them could be used for social interactions, for learning, for entertaining. There are already some universities actually starting to develop what they call virtual campuses. So it's really amazing how the, the concepts of space are changing. So I would recommend that, you know, to get more familiar about cyberspace and how that is really going to affect the way we live. Thanks a lot, Diego. Over to you, Chris. It, my weekly nutrition um, agenda uh, goes usually to listen to the Learn It podcast. Learn It as a single word. Learn It podcast by Floss Hardwood. She offers such an interesting exploration of the new challenges of education, the innovations that are taking place, people who are deploying that, policymakers, uh, entrepreneurs. And I think that that is really, really something that I, I will strongly recommend for people are having a look at that learning podcast. And I'm reading a, a new book now called Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect from Matthew Lieberman. It's fascinating because he's basically explaining that our brain works always when there's social connections. And that says a lot about the success of social media, but also in learning. I mean, uh, we have been talking about all these technologies. If the social component is not present, our brain won't be having the full of its potential. So I strongly recommend to have a look at this book. Thanks a lot, Cristobal. Sounds fascinating. 